Uh, This morning, we look at the next section in the book of Titus. So if you would please turn uh, to the New Testament book of Titus. Uh, All the T's are together uh, in the the Bible. So if you find a T, you're very close, a book that starts with a T. Uh, If you go to Hebrews, you've gone a little bit too far. It's on page 646 in the books, uh, in the Bibles on your chairs where you're seated. Um, Oh, the other thing I was going to mention was uh, this room is a little louder and more echoey than our other room. So maybe you have noticed that, and I'm sure parents have noticed that with their kids. Uh, understand, when I'm up here, I don't hear any of it. it. It it does not bother me. It does not confuse me. So please, I am glad you're here with kids. That's what we should be doing is worshiping with our children. So it's okay if they're squirmy. So it's going to be okay. So I say that because we have four kids. So... Be gracious with us. Um, so this book of Titus, this is Paul writing to a young pastor named Titus who is, um, who is sent to the island of Crete to continue the work that Paul had started. And in this section, we're going to talk about elders. Um, um, one author I was reading this week said, The New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders than on any than on other church subjects, such as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day, baptism, and spiritual leadership. Many times when we think about church government, the organization of the church, we, um, we just think what is the most practical way to organize a church. And we really don't go and look back at how has God called us to organize the church in leadership and what are we called to do. Another writer says the existence of the plurality of elders just means many elders in the church, is written about by virtually every New Testament writer who speaks on the topic of church leadership. So we are Presbyterian. If you imagine a pyramid, and on the top, there's a flat part instead of the point, uh, that is roughly how we operate as a church. Uh, we, We have the plurality of elders. We have teaching elders. That's what I am. And actually, Jeremy is going through the process to take his exams to become a teaching elder. And then there are ruling elders, which are men that are part of our congregation that you will elect to go through a training, and then you will vote them in as the church. So as Presbyterians, we like accountability uh, because we really believe that we are fallen, we are sinful, and we really need to have accountability. We need to have people point us back to the gospel. And so we even see that in the church government of how we're formed. Let me read Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Uh, Paul writing, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put, in, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul is uh, giving Titus fairly clear instruction on uh, 
church leadership, of what does it mean to be an elder in the church? What does it mean to be part of that plurality of elders that works together to shepherd God's people under their care? Uh, Paul left Titus in Crete for two reasons. It says, so that you might put what remains into order and that you might appoint elders in every city. Uh, It's interesting that the word elder, when it's in the Bible, when it's describing uh, how they operate, it's always plural. It's always elders. When it's describing the qualifications, which is what we're going to look at, it talks about an elder, singly. So it's not like you can have a plurality of elders, and all together you can say, well, um, I'm not a drunkard. And the other one could say, well, um, I'm not a slanderer. And you can sort of pool all your characters and sort of meet the character qualifications. It is a single elder is called to fulfill these. But it's important to note, as we look at these, this is not just the leaders in the church that are to walk in these characteristics. This is any one of you who understands what it means to have faith in Jesus and to live a life of repentance. So as we specifically talk about elders, broadly, this is all of us. This is all of how we're called to live a life of faith. Um, It says here, appoint elders in every town. In Acts 6, when it talks about uh, choosing deacons, it uses this word. It says, pick out seven men, and it says it pleased the whole gathering. So seven men were picked out, and it pleased the gathering. The local church had a part in electing those men. In Acts 14, it says, uh, appoint, appointed elders for them in every church. This word appointed can also mean ordained. So as we look at this, Paul is not explaining the process of electing elders. What he's just saying is these men will be appointed and ordained as they've gone through the process. So he's basically just naming this is the end result. If you have men like this, this is what we want you to do. Ordain them, elect them, appoint them to serve the church. So as, let me quickly, and this will be very quick and insufficient, but at least it gives you a good idea of where we're going as a church. Uh, We are a Presbyterian church. Um, So the process we will go through to elect elders and to be our own individual church or an organized church, right now we have a temporary session, and those men uh, work with me to make decisions and to uh, approve a budget and do all those things. There's a lot of accountability. What's going to happen is we're going to ask you as a church to nominate men to go through training. So you'll nominate men who are members of our church. And as we walk through these characteristics, there are men that exemplify these. And they'll go through a year-long training with me. And at the end, we will present those men back to you and say, these men have gone through this training. Now we want you to vote and either elect them or not elect them. Does that make sense? So we're not telling you, here's your leadership. Um, Actually, another odd thing that happens is at the same time we do that, um, I'm technically a church planter. So what's going to happen is then you have the opportunity to vote me in as your pastor. I know. So, <laughs> so okay. Um, so there's a lot of accountability in that. Uh, but that's roughly the process. It takes about a year to, to 
go through that process with a lot of energy and integrity and time. And I want to ask you as a church to begin to pray for that. All right, well, let's begin to look at these qualifications so we can all feel humbled and insufficient and know that uh, it is God alone who works these characteristics in us and causes uh, us to be humble. Uh, it says in the qualification, it says, if anyone is above reproach, this word does not mean blameless in exclusive sense as it means someone who has never sinned. It means a sense of they have not been accused in the community of being a slanderer, a drunkard, um, an adulterer. Uh, they are blameless in society, meaning the people that know them would say, this man has integrity. Um, the early church father, uh, Chrysostom, says that every virtue is implied in this word. So when it says above reproach, it's implying everything that we're talking about. And we see as Paul ends this little section, uh, the first part of this passage, he ends it with the same phrase, men who are above reproach. So we're going to walk through this, then we're going to look at vices and virtues and that Paul explains here. Um, the qualification that follow really flow out of this word. I was, uh, I was very familiar with the church that uh, was going through the process to elect elders, and they bypassed this um, characteristic of someone. And they decided to elect a man who uh, loved, and this is some of our errors as Presbyterians, who loved theology and loved church history, but was known in the community as not a man with integrity, who had hurt other churches, hurt other people in the community. People did not come to this church because of this man, but they decided to say, because he knows theology and church history, we're going to elect him to our church. Uh, That is the wrong way to do it. Character is vital. It is important because it shows that the gospel is working in us. Anyone can learn theology. Anyone can learn church history. Anyone can learn to teach. But the requirement is your character needs to be godly character that God has created in you. Character is vital and important. It says the husband of one wife. Uh, If you read about this, there are many, I think there's about five different ideas that people come out with. Uh, Instead of wasting your time, I'll just give you the correct idea. (laughs) It's always the last one, too. Remember that in school? We'll give you four ideas, and I'm going to wrap it up with the correct idea, and then we're going to move on. No, they, they just talk about, like, it's all this way, or it's all this way. It's written against uh, polygamy. It's written against any man who's been divorced. Um, it's written against electing men who are single. Uh, none of those are entirely accurate. Uh, Donald Guthrie says, the home is a training ground for Christian leaders. Uh, as it talks about a husband and one wife, and it talks about the father parenting his children, uh, the reality is, Uh, we uh, should not elect men to the office of elder if they can't shepherd and minister to their own family. It's really just logical. Um, But in the same way as we go through these, uh, there's a lot of fear in me, even as I talk about these characteristics, because I'm very humbled reading these, knowing this describes how I am called to live resting in Jesus. 
So this does not, this husband of one wife, it does not exclude single men from being elected as an elder, nor a widower, nor a divorced man in some situations, nor does it exclude married men without children, because it talks about their children. And some men read this and go, well, I don't have children, so I can't be elected an elder. The question I hear many times relating to this passage is uh, what to do with a man that has been divorced. That's not a simple answer. Because from that answer, we need to separate that into other questions. And the other question is, was it a biblical divorce? Or is it a non-biblical divorce? Was it a divorce before this man came to understand the gospel? Or was it after he had faith in Christ? So, uh, you can't have a blanket answer to this. It is a complicated issue. But I tell you that there are many situations that a man who's gone through divorce can be elected as an elder. But there are some situations that a man would not fulfill this requirement. So Paul is not prohibiting a divorced man from serving in this capacity. The real, uh, the literal word-for-word Greek translation says this man is to be a one-woman man. So really, it's not talking about uh, marital status as much as it's talking about faithfulness. Uh, it would be very easy to say, well, this man's married, so he fills this requirement. Um, there are many marriages where uh, they're really a mess. Husband and wife don't communicate. They're bitter. They're angry at each other. Um, they slander each other publicly. As much as they're legally married, that man does not fulfill this requirement of faithfully nurturing and shepherding his family. So really, this is more accurately talking about a man's faithfulness um, and how he is fit for this office of service. Being faithful in marriage means you have a real and nurtured emotional, social, and sexual relationship with your wife as a husband. That's what it should be. Joyfully. In all of those categories. The other side of this is the man that I mentioned of being technically married but having a poor marriage. And this is why it's really important as we go through this process that you as members of this church don't just take the back seat and go, well, I'm just going to pray. and That's all I'm going to do. I want you to get to know these men as they're going through this process. Because you will vote for them or against them. So which means, get to know them. Have coffee with them. Have them and their families into your homes. Talk with them. Because you are electing men to shepherd you. And to care for you. As a community, we need to know, and we've given this great opportunity, to know the elders and shepherds that we are about to elect. Uh, There's a big difference between a church of a thousand, I think it's even probably about 500 people uh, compared to our size. Uh, we have roughly 200 people. Uh, you can know, they say you can know 150 people. So if you have a church, you can know and remember names of 150 people. Some of you, it's like seven people. But we're going to go with the average of 150, okay? Um, so you have the opportunity 
to engage these men as they're going through this training and to spend time with them. When you have a church of over 500 people, 1,000 people, 1,500 people, you might not even know the men as we bring them up and as we pray for them and as we ask you to vote for them. You might not even know who they are. But the blessing of a smaller congregation is that you get the opportunity to get to know these men. So then it mentions husband of one wife and children are believers. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, It uses the term believers. Uh, That term can also be translated faithful. And there's a lot of argument in this passage too because some people only read this in Titus and they don't look at the parallel in Timothy and they say, if my children are not believers, meaning if my children are not Christians, then I can't be an elder. That's not what this means. This means that your children are faithful, obedient, and respectful to you as their father. And to look at this further, turn left to 1 Timothy. In chapter 3, he's talking about the household of the man uh, who is called to be an elder. And so 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So that we are to elect men whose uh, children are not open to the charge of insubordination, rebellion in their family. Uh, Obedient fits better here uh, rather than Paul creating a whole new thought with really an ambiguous phrase. So we can conclude that an elder needs to show his shepherding integrity by raising obedient, respectful children. Uh, And I am up here as a father of four young kids. Uh, Parenting, as many of you know, is very, very hard. And I don't think there's anything as humbling to me as striving to be a faithful father to my kids. And a lot of that is repenting to my kids. And it's a continual repentance. Um, So we uh, want, and this is every father, this is every mother, this is every aunt and sister, we want good relationships with the people around us, which means we'll have the hard conversations, uh, which means we'll not just say, I love you, but we'll have have the hard conversations of truth. Uh, I was at, uh, well, I know of another uh, church that, Uh, A man was elected to be an elder, a godly man. Uh, He was married, didn't have kids. Uh, What he was really missing in his life was understanding of you cannot have love without truth. So his understanding was if we just love everybody, they're eventually going to turn around and repent of their sin. There was no understanding of graciously showing up at their door, lovingly confronting someone wanting them to understand God's grace has called them to live a different way. So it's, it, you know, you, you, as a man being elected to this office, you do not have to have children. But you need to be aware, like every parent, that real love has real truth. And you can't separate them. 
Uh, It goes on, uh, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Paul wraps up the positive aspects of an elder, uh, the elder's life, with a repeat of the introductory phrase of above reproach. But as you notice, he uses a different word. He begins earlier with the word elder, and now he uses the word overseer. Uh, Elder is where we get the word Presbyterian. Uh, Overseer or bishop is where we get the word episcopal. So elder is talking about uh, seniority and leadership, where an uh, an overseer is more talking about function of that role. But they're really, they're used as synonyms um, throughout the New Testament. Why is character important? Uh, Because these men are called to be God's steward. Uh, But Remember what I said earlier, that these characteristics are what all of us are to have. We can't just say, well, those are the elders. They are to be above reproach. I can just do whatever I want and live a slanderous, publicly grievous, sinful life, and it doesn't even matter. It does matter. Because what we as a church want to see is we want to see God transform you. So we want to see your brokenness and your history and your sin, we want to see that transformed into godliness and humility and respect for others and being people of self-control. All right, now we'll talk about the five vices quickly, and then we'll get to the five virtues. It says, uh, he must not be arrogant. Arrogance drives you to seek your own interest. We cannot shepherd others if we are just serving ourselves in our arrogance. We all need to know that without God, his mission still carries on. That is, uh, I battle that sometimes, uh, but it's amazingly freeing. Know that uh, wanting to build this church and gather this community and work with you in this, that at some point, some other pastor is going to follow me. And so I want to work with you to build this church so the next man to come to pastor you will do it with joy and will love you and you will love him because the church is not about uh, me. The church is about Christ. It is uh, his bride. So that is our goal. So must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Uh, Roots of control and pride in his life uh, have been removed and are continually being removed. Um, In the South, uh, and I imagine it's here also, we hear people say, he's a good man, just don't make him angry. (laughs) It's the wrong uh, man that we're looking for. Um, uh, It says, or a drunkard. Uh, The roots of idolatry in his life, of addiction, and his idols have been removed and are continually being removed. He's not violent. The roots of disrespect of others has been removed and is continually being removed. He is not a man who strikes out at others physically or verbally. He's not greedy for gain. The roots of earthly success in his life are being removed. He understands that as Christians, we live for something else. We do not live for earthly success. 
He is not a man who takes advantage of others for his own success. Uh, And the six virtues. This man is to be hospitable. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, this word, hospitality. It's never a gift in the Bible. But we like to call it a gift because then we feel like we can say, I just don't have that gift. I don't have that gift to be nice to people or kind to strangers or welcome people into my home. Well, it's never a gift in the Bible, and it's actually a requirement to be an elder. It's a friend of strangers, a pursuer of people. It's really the opposite of arrogant, someone who is a servant of the people around them. Another virtue is a lover of good. The affections for good are, are active in their life. That he's a man that is loving and pursuing what is good. He's self-controlled. He's having a healthy or sound mind. Submits to God call, God's calling and not driven by his own passions. He's upright. He walks according to God's laws. He is holy. He is devoted to the things of God. He rests in God's promise. He is a disciplined man, having an active pursuit of living in grace. Really, this may be listed as the the positive to the five vices that we just talked about. These five vices, arrogance, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, those grow out of an undisciplined life. Some of the danger as we look through a list of uh, vices and virtues is to create in our own mind a little boxes in front of them. And to be able to say, well, okay, I'm not a drunkard, so I'm okay there. And I'm not this, and I have this. And then you look at the end and you add up your scores and you come out with, I guess I'm okay. Uh, our danger as people is to see this as a list of morality. And to say, if a man or if someone fulfills these requirements externally, then that means their heart is right. This is where, as a Christian church, being built on the work of Christ, we see morality as something completely different. We are not aiming to be moral people. We are resting in the fact that Jesus is the one who is righteous. Jesus is the one who is good. Jesus is the one who is perfect. And we rest in his perfection, in his obedience, in his rest, in his righteousness. And what we want to see is these characteristics grow in us, in all of us. Everyone here, that's what we want to see as a church. But you know, just like I know, that we don't sit here this morning and go, well, I've got these covered As I read these, I realize some of the areas in my life that I need some more repentance. I need to be more actively repentant and to rest in Jesus is the one who has done all these. And I want to mirror these characteristics. So when people say, you are a good man, I can say, no, Jesus is the one who's good. He is the one who's transformed me and is continually transforming me. As Paul ends this, he also adds another one about the ability to teach. He said he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
actively living a life of faith in Jesus and repentance of sin. Talks here about the ability to teach and to shepherd those around them to live in the same pattern. Um, But we need to understand that teaching does not hold more weight than character. Sometimes we read this and say, well, that man then needs to be able to stand in front of hundreds of people and teach them. No. This is a man that can sit with someone else and walk through passages of the Bible and show them the goodness and freedom that's provided in Jesus. That's what teaching means. Now, if they can teach to larger groups, that's wonderful. But they don't have to. I think as I think about these characteristics, I'm reminded of uh, someone in our uh, extended family who um, is an excellent swim teacher but does not have the ability to swim. And so we could look at these like this. We could say, if you have the ability to teach, then obviously these are in you. But that's not always true. So we need to be very cautious. We need to be very prayerful as we move forward with this as a church. But also, it's a wonderful thing. Nothing will shape our community more than the elders that you elect. Nothing. Nothing will. It is significant. I think of these questions when I think about uh, the office of elder. Where would you go to drink deeply of God's grace? And not just the office of elder. Where do you go in your life to drink deeply of God's grace? Whose door would you go knock on and show up broken because of your sin? Who would you seek to shepherd you in your marriage, in your parenting, in your singleness, in your selfishness, in your life? Whose door would you go knock on and say, I need some help? Those are the people we're looking for. A summary of, uh, of an elder is a man who can say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Not model your life after me because I have this disciplined life pattern set. Here's what you have to do to appear godly. It's someone who can say, imitate my life because I have been humbled by the Almighty God and I understand my sin, but more than that, I understand how Jesus loves me and sets me free. Someone who you can sit down with and they can point you to God's promises. The description here is more about their life than about their professional success or their ministry knowledge. All theology and ministry ability can be learned, but the character and qualifications need to be evident when we elect elders. You can't say, Boy, that man, he has a seed in his life that one day he won't be a drunkard. I I just see it. One day he'll be better. No, that's not who we're looking for. We're looking for a man that God has transformed his life. And he can say, I was a drunkard. And God has set me free from that. And now I want to sit down with the drunkard. I want to share God's good news with them. That's who I want to be led by. And I hope that's who you want to be led by. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful. You are gracious. We 
thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for uh, your mercy. We thank you that uh, you are the one who transforms us. And we ask that you would increase our faith. You would help us to drink deeply of your grace, not only this morning and now as we move towards communion, but that we would have people in our lives who would be um, vessels of grace, would point us to God's promise and his joy and his mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.